Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We enter the world of adolescent psychiatry now. Linda Ness speaks to Professor Tamsin Ford from Cambridge University. Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, is an expert in child and adolescent psychiatry. She is a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and since 2019 has been based at the University of Cambridge, where she is Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Amongst other work, Tamsin has set up initiatives aimed at highlighting mental health issues in young children and helped teachers to be more prepared when dealing with children who are experiencing problems. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Tamsin. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, it's a fascinating topic, this, actually. And one thing, one thing that interests me is, is that career paths sometimes take twists from their original plan. When you started university, would you have been surprised to see where you are today? Oh, extremely. It's kind of been the story of, of my life, really. So even before I got to university, I loved reading and I loved writing and I always thought I was going to be a novelist in a garret um, really? <laughs> yes. And I um, grew up in a family of people who are talented thespians and photographers and painters. My mother um, was an art teacher, but also later in her life repaired ceramics for places like Christie's and Phillips, you know, incredibly wow. skilled. I can't underline a heading straight and I can't draw. <laughs> I guess I have been some kind of a writer. So if you had said to me when I was 11 or 12, you're going to be a doctor, I'd have fallen about laughing. And actually it was a chemistry teacher who taught me for the whole of secondary school from the age of 11, who when I was making A-level choices, heard that I was sort of dithering between two art subjects and a science or two science subjects and she really encouraged me to do chemistry saying you know you're you're better than average at this and the other option was English and she said you're a reader you'll always read books but if you stop doing chemistry now that'll be it and I'm quite an old bag so this was at the time when you needed three sciences or two sciences and maths to get to medical school And I think actually for what I do now, my history A-level was the sort of more important of the other stuff I could have picked up along the way. And in fact, at my interview at Bristol Medical School, I had a debate about this with the um, professor who seemingly was unimpressed with my argument that I could learn the bits of physics that I needed to (coughs) and didn't offer me a place. But, you know, I did in the end go off and do physics A-level after I left school. I don't think I'd have been able to do two science A-levels. So, you know, that conversation swung my entire career. And what was rather lovely is a few years ago, on the 30th anniversary of leaving school, I went back to a reunion hoping that this teacher would be there, and she was. So I got to have a conversation about, you know, your encouragement absolutely changed my life for the better. That's amazing. You know, you're the second woman that we've interviewed recently who has had that kind of mentor, that someone in the background who's pushed them in the right direction and changed their lives, really. It's fascinating. Yeah, it just shows the power of encouragement because I think, you know, I was surrounded by literature, art, the arts, um, and nobody in my family... You know, scientists were mad people who were going to blow up the world. (laughs) And... 
there was nobody feeding that side of me and the interest was there but uh, you know it was being given the confidence that actually you're good at this and it's important. So you trained as a doctor and you worked in several London hospitals but then you specialised in psychiatry. What made you choose that particular path? Well, again, I think it's interesting. So whilst I was doing physics A-level, I couldn't find a job that would allow me the, you know, the mornings off to go to my physics lessons. So I filled up my time because everybody else was either travelling the world or off at university. Um, I filled up my time by going to adult education courses. And, you know, a few of them were very practical. So I learnt to touch type properly without having to look down at your fingers, for which I'm immensely grateful. Um, it was very tedious, but a very good thing to have done. And I did history of art to please my mother and a writing course because that was just fun. But actually, one of the things that caught my eye was a um, psychology and sociology access to university course. And I just, you know, I had a spare afternoon and I just thought that looks interesting. I'll go. So actually, the interest in mental health was there, although not articulated before I even got to medical school. And we were very well taught. And actually, you know, there's a book which I think is God knows what edition it's in now. But um, it's a book called Learning Medicine, which sort of talks about the different career options. And it's aimed at people wanting to be medical students so that they have an idea of what they're letting themselves in for. And I remember very clearly reading it. And, and you know, one out of a year of 100 was likely to be a psychiatrist and thinking well that strikes me as not very many but you know not really thinking about it well in my year I think there are over 20 psychiatrists out of 109 of us and I think that was something about the very inspirational teaching but actually looking back at me and my attitudes I think it was going to be psychiatry or nothing or maybe public health but again you know it wasn't you know maybe if we'd had superb public health teaching I might have gone in for that at all but you know I've always wanted to do psychiatry when you qualify as a doctor they let you out with L plates essentially and in my day you had to do six months medicine and six months surgery it's now two years and interestingly I didn't feel ready to kind of abandon the doctoring bit of doctoring and and be a psychiatrist because at those times and I think sadly quite a lot today physical medicine and psychiatry is just too separate and when you're the psychiatrist on call you are the medical cover and I just didn't think that I had enough experience to do that well so I did what they now have to do which is an extra year where I went and worked in a casualty department at King's in Brixton which you know was a fabulous if exhausting experience and meant that you know by the end of that six months I'd basically seen pretty much every emergency I was likely to be faced with and have to handle on my own and then I did a job which was three months care of the elderly in the east end of London and three months care of the elderly mentally ill at a different allied hospital which is great because I got a little bit ahead of the game in psychiatry but I did a bit more medicine as well so that when I was the only person with any medical skills in a medical emergency in a psychiatric hospital I kind of felt equipped to deal with it and confident that I could. You were mentioning public health there and just as a bit of an aside I was interested to see that you have a master's in epidemiology which is of course very relevant in these Covid days. Have, have you been keeping a keen eye on the way that the virus is being handled? 
Yes, well, it's been a crash, crash um, revision course in infectious diseases epidemiology. So epidemiology really is the basic science that underpins public health in the same way that sort of physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, genetics are the basic sciences that underpin a lot of medicine. And the London School of Hygiene was such a privilege to go and do my master's there. So I'm very unusual as an academic in that I did all of my postgraduate clinical training in psychiatry before I really did any serious research, whereas most people get involved earlier on. And I think, you know, there are pluses and minuses. And I think it's another example of how my life has taken unexpected twisted and turns. So if you had said to me, even when I was most of the way through my um, psychiatry training, you're going to end up being a professor and an academic, I would have fallen around laughing at you. <laughs> really? As, as well as would have most of my friends and certainly most of the people who knew me at medical school. You know, I was not sitting in the front row and top of the class <laughs> by any means. In fact, I was usually in trouble for asking why. Um, <laughs> but that's and good, good questions. <laughs> well, I thought so, but my um, tutors were less impressed at the time. <laughs> You run a large trial supporting teachers and children in schools. Tell us about that. This, again, was a real privilege. It was a study that I really wanted to do. And in fact, we're um, supporting a replication of it now because one trial in this country is not enough to be confident. Although I would argue that six days training that appears to have an impact on children's mental health and their ability to concentrate and low-level disruption in the classroom over a couple of academic years afterwards actually is worth the investment, particularly as it seems to be most effective for those children in poor mental health at the beginning. So I had become increasingly convinced as a child psychiatrist that a large part of my job was helping children to cope with school, really. I mean, I don't want to criticise unduly are very hard-working teachers and I think anyone who's had to try and homeschool their children Mm. over the lockdown will have a hearty respect for just what teachers do but I think our education system is very underfunded and we have a system that is great if you are kind of miss or master average yes but if you are different in some way I think it can be very very difficult to cope with and you know you go to any university department of computing or firms of accountancy or tech firms you will find a sizable proportion of people who have an autism spectrum condition Mm -hmm. but this is a group who often are academically able but really struggle to cope in the very social atmosphere of school particularly secondary school and either their behavior is misinterpreted and they're seen as disobedient and difficult so they sort of go down the exclusion route or they get so anxious because they just cannot cope in the social environment that they stop going and therefore they don't fulfill their academic potential Mm -hmm. and you know seeing this repeatedly in the clinic and then reading up about it just made me think well you know what training do teachers get about child development and managing behavior because you know I would not feel equipped to stand up in front of a class of 30 pupils and be confident that I could get to the end of the lesson. In fact, one of the scariest things I ever did was whilst I was a trainee on the adolescent inpatient unit at the Bethlehem 
during the summer holiday when the schools were closed, we were all expected to muck in and do things with the young people who sadly were too unwell to go home. And I ran a yoga class, and I could just remember at the beginning of it with six young people. I mean, okay, it's six young people who had, you know, fairly severe mental illnesses, but I was just thinking, I've only got six of them, and I am really terrified (laughs) (laughs) that I'm going to be able to keep control of this. In fact, it all went fine. But, you know, teachers do a very, very tough job. But in this country, we don't give them a lot of formal training anymore. There are very few B.Ed courses that cover things like child development Mm -hmm. or classroom management skills so you fall back on what you experienced at school and your own parenting which may or may not be a good experience and what you see around you and that's not the same in some other countries and at the same time I was very lucky to um, work as a trainee with Stephen Scott um, at South London and Morsley NHS Trust and he was um, an expert in helping children with really severe um, behaviour problems at the point where it becomes a mental health condition because it's impairing their ability to function in everyday life and would be known by the rather unfortunate name of conduct disorder. Now, we could talk for (laughs) hours about whether that should be a psychiatric diagnosis, but just accept that these children do appallingly badly in terms of future health, education occupation and their intimate relationships so and also conduct disorder in childhood predicts to every adult mental health condition there is including psychosis anxiety and depression and it affects about one in 20 of our school age population so that's one or maybe two in every single classroom Mm -hmm. who have that level of behavior um, disturbance So Stephen Scott had become very interested and subsequently ran a couple of trials on a parenting programme developed by a very talented woman from Seattle called Carolyn Webster Stratton. And the parenting course is called The Incredible Years. And if you're interested, she has an excellent website. But in fact, because she works in the American system where the most vulnerable children don't have access to health insurance... She had developed these programs as a kind of package and with a parenting course, but also a course for teachers and then one for small groups of the young people. And the idea was it was this three pronged approach that fell back on very well known psychological theories and, you know, most of which have empirical evidence to back them up. So the fact that adult attention is very rewarding. Mm-hmm. if you're responding all the time to the low level disruption I mean obviously there are things as a parent or a teacher you absolutely have to respond to yes but it's best to try and ignore as much as the stuff you don't want if you can and to be very clear about what you do want so rather than saying don't cross the road which is frankly dangerous because the instruction cross the road is much more salient than the don't at the beginning of it which is why so often small children if you say don't do that they immediately do it yes I mean it's like if I say don't think of a pink elephant anyone not thinking of a pink elephant is actually really quite unusual you know so rather than don't don't cross the road stay by me on the pavement then the child is absolutely clear what you want as opposed to just knowing one thing out of a range of options that you don't want them to do and you know the the programs are not sort of soft and fluffy and you've got to be lovely with children they are they are wanting to tie what the the behavior that you want gets lots of attention positive incentives and 
behavior has consequences so if you do all your work you get more golden time at school or if you push your sister you will have to go and sit on the naughty chair and think about it and then it's really important that the consequences that you've laid out are followed through because then the child learns that you know behavior has consequences the parenting program had just now gone everywhere all over the world and it makes absolutely sense as a public health intervention if you want to have the biggest impact on children whose behavior is difficult supporting the parents who are trying to manage them because ultimately the only thing that any of us are in control of is what we ourselves do so if you want somebody else to change then you need to change how you are responding to them is actually going to be the most effective but training parents is going to do nothing about behavior that's a difficulty in school now i know that family context and parenting is hugely important but actually holding parents responsible for their child's behavior in the classroom is a little bit like expecting teachers to ensure that their pupils tidy their bedrooms and make their beds Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when i'm feeling brave i say that to teachers i say put your hand up if you think you can do this and so far nobody has um because it's a big ask and yet it's something that practitioners both in education and and health services i've sat in many conferences around disciplinary issues where that's precisely what we're doing we're holding the parents responsible for something they can't change so i got to thinking about well what about for these problems that are school-based and i'd seen a number of families come through the clinic where they'd done really well with a parenting course And then a year or so later, there'd been a problem at school and the whole family gets knocked back because they're so anxious about it slipping back and because they get messages from the school that it's all their fault and they're not being hard enough. And one of the things we know is that harsh, inconsistent discipline certainly makes behaviour problems last longer. So um, I went and got myself trained in, you know, so I could have delivered the course I went and visited Carolyn Webster Stratton in Seattle to talk about, you know, what did she think about trialing this on its own? And then began a couple of years of feasibility work where we just delivered the course for free to some teachers and then got their feedback about it. And at the same time, I was sort of testing out the feasibility of running it as a trial, because if you don't work with the people you know, in a way, I was using schools like, you know, uh, subjects in, in a laboratory study. And if you don't kind of understand their context and what's going to fly, then then your trial, however beautifully designed as an experiment, won't work. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wondered was whether or not this training had an impact on how teachers felt about how good they were at their job, their levels of burnout, which we know in the education profession are very high. Yeah and mental health, which we also know is poorer than the general population amongst teachers. But I didn't know whether I could get teachers to fill in questionnaires about it. So it was that kind of thing. So we we ran, I think, four groups over a couple of years and did a lot of preparatory work. And then were kind of slightly caught on the, the hoof 
about six months before we were going to apply for funding, a call came out from the National Institute of Health Research, which is like the, the government's kind of health research arm, if you like, it's an arm's length body that gives out funding. And it put out a call for social emotional interventions to improve children's mental health. So I kind of thought, well, if I don't go for it now, it's a bit early, but if I don't go for this now, I'll never get it. And to cut a long story short, we got it. We ran a five-year trial with 80 schools around the southwest of England, which was where I was then based. And basically, we randomised, which means like tossing a coin, which school got the intervention. Now, one of the things head teachers told us when we were doing our preparatory work was that if they didn't get the intervention, they wouldn't stay in the study. So the ideal trial design is half get it and half don't, and you compare all your outcomes. And what you hope is at the end of the study, the ones who've got the intervention are doing much better. But if you lose all your control schools because they're not going to allow you to come into their classrooms and disrupt everything, collecting questionnaires every every year, then that's obviously no good. So we devised a design whereby, provided we had no mixed year groups, amongst the children who were being followed for the intervention then the control group could send a teacher on the course the following year provided that teacher didn't come into contact with the trial children over the next couple of years so it was it was very complicated to run Mm -hmm. we had about 2,000 young people we sent questionnaires home to parents via the book bags and were amazed when we got 70% of those back at baseline the main outcome was mental health of the child as rated by the teacher. So we got all our baseline measures before we randomised, which is really important because then nobody is influenced by who's going to go on the course straight away or who's in the control group and has to wait because none of us know at that point. The teachers then were told whether or not they were going on the course and the course ran from November to about April the next year. It was six whole days, but spread about a month apart so that the teachers could go into their classrooms and try things out. And the course is manualised, but it allows adaptation to the context with fidelity to the original model. So there's a number of ways that you can get the key points across, which include getting the teachers you know, to role play situations so that people can practice and rehearse how they might manage things. So that somebody plays the teacher, somebody plays the child, somebody plays what the teacher might be saying to themselves to help them cope the kind of internal monologue and then you have a discussion about how it's gone you can use video vignettes um, but because they were all quite old um, and also in the states I think they had to be quite carefully handled because otherwise everybody was sort of trying to see what date they came from and sort of put off by the, <laughs> the differences and not focusing on, on what they were and sometimes just didactic teaching or discussions. And it was organised in, you know, the first whole day really is about making it a safe environment for teachers to come and sit and reflect. And the teachers loved it. You know, we had really, really positive feedback on the whole. They would be a bit frustrated because they'd come in wanting to know how to deal with their trickiest pupils. And, of course, it starts with the positive attention and the importance of good relationships with some lovely concepts like the piggy bank of goodwill. You know, if you are going to correct a child, then you do need to have that positive relationship 
and sort of being careful that the only time you talk to parents is not when you've got something bad to say about their child. So sending good news home as much as you can is is really important. So yeah, the teachers really valued it. And then we went back at the end of the course, so carefully missing SATs, but usually June of the same academic year and got the teachers and the children to fill in their questionnaires and then sent questionnaires home via the book bags. And on a quarter of our sample, we also did blind observations. So people went to the classroom. We worked very hard to try and make sure that they didn't know whether it was an intervention or a control school, although sometimes they're hints. And I think in about two thirds of cases, they guessed rightly when we asked them, but we tried really hard to keep them blind. So they went in before the course started. And then when we got our first follow up intervention, so that was a bit of sort of external observation as as a backup. And then we went back the next two years in the, the spring term to get data because we have a problem in that you can't stop a teacher knowing that they've been on the course. So when people talk about a double-blind randomised controlled trial, what they mean by that is neither the doctor, who is usually referred to in drug trials, neither the doctor or the patient knows whether the patient has been given the placebo drug or the new intervention. Well, when you're talking about psychological or talking therapies or this course, you, you can't blind a teacher to the fact they've been on the course. And, of course, our primary outcome was the teachers recorded a brief questionnaire called the the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire that they completed about all the children in their class before they went on the course and afterwards. And, you know, the weakness is that the, the going on the course might have changed the way that they responded. So we wanted to go back when we insisted that the children separated from the teacher at the end of the year, partly so that the control teachers could access the course but partly also so we could get data from a different teacher in subsequent years and we went back for two years afterwards so each school was in the trial for 30 months so three academic years pretty much and what we found was that there was a small but statistically significant reduction in mental health problems across the population of children who were taught by teachers who went on the course in the first year. It didn't persist into the next two years, but low-level disruption was reduced across all three time points, and I think most teachers would think that's worthwhile. And children's concentration was improved across all three time points. Now, those are two, you know, they might not be health variables but for education those are two very important variables Mm -hmm. and then for the children who were in poor mental health at the beginning their mental health did improve and that did seem to persist so um, I think it's not equivocal evidence that we should all be rushing out and doing this but what we can say is it does seem to have a fact an effect on the most needy the teachers found it acceptable it was feasible for them to do and they enjoyed doing it and found it useful and it was enough to secure funding to do another bigger trial with some learning that came out of that first trial so for example in our focus groups where we were asking teachers about the experience of going on the course several of them said well this has been absolutely brilliant But of course, it started in the middle of the year and you wait till I can actually build this into my planning next year. And I thought, well, 
we're not going to know about that because we're following the children. We're not following you. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting, really, isn't it? That they wanted to pursue that really well it you know it certainly says to me that they thought it was useful because mm-hmm. they wanted to use it and this trial is going to train all year one and year two teachers and um the children who are in reception as the teachers do their training so in other words they have two years of being taught by teachers trained this way will be the children that we follow um, so they'll have two years because also the other thing was the intervention was long for the teachers. It was six months, but it meant that the children were essentially only taught by a fully trained teacher for half a term. Mm-hmm. So, again, the fact we found anything is perhaps remarkable. Yeah. Anyway, it was a real privilege to do this study. It was a study that I really, really wanted to do and worked very hard to get the funding Um but, you know, working hard and having a strong application doesn't always result in a funded grant application. It's maybe just me, but is there more of an, an emphasis these days on mental health? Because I don't remember it being such an emphasis when I was when I was young and, and I went to the school in the 60s and 70s. Do you think that instances of poor mental health has increased or is it just more transparent because we, we accept it and we talk about it far more now? That's an extremely good question. I think actually it's a bit of both. I was involved in a very interesting study led by colleagues at UCL where they looked at panel surveys that had been completed in England, Wales and Scotland over a 20-year period. So these are big cross-sectional surveys about all kinds of things but often containing a measure of mental health completed about children by parents or by young people themselves and so these are different groups of young people but you can look at age and gender of you know the same age and same gender over years and although we didn't detect a consistent signal that mental health was deteriorating year on year we did find that parents and young people were much more answer much more likely to answer positively to the question do you think you might have a mental health problem mm-hmm. now whether that reflects a change in awareness or a change in willingness to speak out i don't know and i i agree i think certainly there's been some very hard work via the Royal College of Psychiatrists and other mental health organisations to tackle stigma head on and to encourage people to self to seek help which I think is a good thing we have effective interventions and we just need to be able to plug more people into them mm-hmm. and you know the burden of mental health conditions is as high as that for cancer or cardiovascular disease the funding is is much much lower both in terms of research and service provision and I think this reflects the the stigma that's attached to mental health still, although I think it is lifting. Mm-hmm. At the same time, some very careful studies have demonstrated that I think we are seeing an increase in mental health conditions among young people in the UK. So a colleague from Cardiff, Stephen Collishaw, has studied trends in poor mental health in young people across the world, and he's sort of detected clear increases and decreases in different countries at different times as far as you can adjusting for sort of methodological problems and I think it is really difficult because the way people answer questionnaires changes over time Mm -hmm. 
the questionnaires used or the way you measure and define mental health. So autism is a, a very good example. When I was training as a psychiatrist in the 1990s, we still thought that autism was a very rare, severe condition affecting one in 10,000 children that was mostly associated with a degree of learning disability, when in fact, as people have studied it in more depth and in populations that weren't collected via clinics, we realise now that it's a spectrum uh-huh. and probably it's more like one in a hundred young people are affected to the point that it interferes with their functioning. You know, so I think with autism spectrum in particular, you have to be a bit careful. I think there has been a whole redefinition of the condition and also much greater awareness of the condition and how it can impact on people. Mm-hmm. That said, I've been part of big national surveys, um, which again was a huge amount of luck and a real privilege to be involved in the first one as a clinical rater. And then in the last one, I trained most of the clinical raters and ended up leading the scientific advice to to the report in three separate surveys which were big the first one was ten and a half thousand the second one was nearly eight thousand and the last one was over nine thousand children and young people and that does show a statistically significant increase in the age group that we had data on at all three time points so it's gone up from basically one in one in ten to one in eight. For the first time, we had data in older teenagers, so 17 to 19-year-olds in the last survey, and they seem to be really struggling, and that is now a consistent signal that is coming out of lots of different data sources. So the Millennium Cohort, who are now um, 19, the last data was collected when they were 17, huge rates of psychological distress, and likewise, there has been a parallel survey of adult mental health that has happened every seven years. And in the last one, which was 2014, there's a sudden spike of anxiety and depression and self-harm amongst the 16 to 24-year-olds, particularly young women. So I think when you're getting the same signal from different teams of researchers in different ways, I think we have to conclude that there is something that is badly affecting the mental health of our older teenagers and particularly young girls. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that something might be the internet and social media? I think it is something that lots of people are worried about. I don't think it's going to be any one thing and I think there is a correlation between social media use and poor mental health. So in our national survey in 2017, for example, youngsters that um, had a mental health condition were more likely to feel out of control on their internet use. They were more likely to feel that they couldn't be themselves. They were more likely to have both perpetrated and been the victim of cyberbullying. But we really lack longitudinal data and it could work both ways people withdraw when their mental health is poor. So maybe you're spending more time on the internet because you're not doing other things. Yeah, I know. It has been a worry, I think, for a lot of people. And there does seem to have been quite a radical change over the past few years. And that's what made me wonder if that was maybe a factor. Now, 
Last year, in, in 2019, you were awarded a CBE for your work in transforming mental health services in schools in the United Kingdom. How did that feel? Well, if I'm honest, I was completely gobsmacked. Um, it came out of the blue. I thought the letter was a tax return, you know. This, <laughs> <laughs> this official letter arrives. And, and then I thought it was someone having a joke. I actually showed it to my husband and said, which one of your friends are that good at... <laughs> Um, Photoshop. Um, it it was really lovely. You know, the the day of actually going and picking up the award was was a really lovely day. My children and my husband and I went to the palace, and yes, you know, it's the fact that a whole group of peers would have had to have written recommendations, and you know, I've been involved in writing them for other people. Yeah, I was amazed. I felt very humbled. I felt, why me and not many of the other people I know who I work with or those I know of and haven't met. But, yes, very grateful, delighted, but hugely surprised. <laughs> you, you have children of your own, as, as you've mentioned. Something I'm a little bit curious about, do you think that your involvement in the research that you do has made you more aware of their growth and experiences and that of their friends as well. Are you kind of watching them with a professional eye, you know, in, in a kind of unconscious way, I mean? <laughs> you know, we try not to. I mean, obviously, you know, all the work I was involved with around managing behaviour, I think was hugely helpful. You know, babies don't come along with a manual. No. Um and you have no control over who comes to live with you. Some of us score an angel and get some, you know, <laughs> a baby with a really lovely, warm, easygoing temperament who's just easy to be with. And some of us get children who are irritable, anxious, you know, just much trickier to um, scaffold their behaviour in a way that they can develop to their potential. I think... They have been hugely helpful. So, you know, I think they were they were three when they first helped a psychology assistant get to grips with tests they were doing in a, in a study. Um, and, you know, they've done it all the way since, uh, tested out way, the way things are uh, put together and how long it takes to do questionnaires. Yeah, I think it, you know, I'm sure it has influenced their experience as children I hope not in in a bad way and I you know I I would, haven't allowed them to be in any of my studies but um I think they've quite enjoyed you know having their opinions taken seriously mm. um yeah I can imagine and what work are you involved with at the moment Tamsin um well at the moment as with probably a lot of people we're very preoccupied by getting data on mental health amongst children and young people in relation to COVID because we have a huge data gap in the under 16s which there are a couple of good internet linked convenience surveys that are telling us about what's happening during COVID but we have almost no data that allows us to link from how children were doing before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so we've managed to get funding to go back to the national survey sample that were last seen in 2017 and there is the first wave of three waves of questionnaires that will be reported on later this month. Yes, it's it's been a, a busy but interesting time. 
Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking to Professor Tamsin Ford. I'm quite interested in psychiatry, psychology, that kind of thing. And I found it very interesting, you know, her talking about the the children and people that are suffering from stress and anxiety and the fact that, you know, it does seem to be a growing thing. And and we did have that topic. Is it growing or is it just more recognised mm. these days? I would say it's the latter part, actually. If I yeah, had my definitely. humble opinion, Linda, I would probably say <laughs> that we are recognising it more than we've ever done, which is a good thing, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. It is. But I did find it amusing when I asked her if she thought she'd be surprised about what she was doing at the moment. And she said, yes, I wasn't the best student. Um, and I think that's very interesting. You know, she's now a professor and very renowned at what she's doing. So any, you know, students that are listening, you know, it shows you for the bit of bit of application where you can get to. Women making waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.